This podcast is about correcting the balance, whether it's something celebrated as good when it shouldn't be or the other way around. Or maybe the heroic tales of history just need to be knocked straight on their ass. Me, I just want to share the complete picture because that's when this whole thing gets fun. Warning, jokes and sarcasm may ensue. Welcome to Prick the Balloon. Hi, I'm Mike Vance, and welcome to episode four. Now, I have never been a follower. Years ago, a bunch of comedians took psychological evaluations because one of the guys was dating a woman who was doing a graduate dissertation. I am proud to say that I had such a low score on deference to authority that her professor asked questions about it. But having said all of that, I want to open with a survey result. Every few years, C-SPAN has been asking about 150 top presidential historians to rate all the presidents in 10 categories. And for those of you who think history doesn't change, I got news. The rankings change. Part of it is because new presidents get added. For example, the orange dude made everybody move up a spot. But they also change because new information comes out with the release of memoirs, new books, letters, documents, and evolving views on subjects like racial justice. Some of the ratings are completely mind-boggling to me, but I think others are pretty damn solid. And one guy whose stock has been improving of late is Ulysses S. Grant. And I gotta say, I heartily agree. For years, when people thought about Grant, they thought about two things— the general who won the Civil War, and an ineffective president riddled by corruption. Only one of those is true. Grant had a very complicated presidency. You can't run the country for eight years without anything happening, particularly when those eight years are the most tumultuous peacetime years in American history. Let's start with a little about Grant's beginnings. People think of his hometown as Galena, way out in the northwest corner of Illinois, but that was later. Grant grew up in Ohio, He was the son of a tanner, which is about the stinkiest damn job in history, at least before septic tanks and porticans were invented. Grant went to the military academy at West Point almost against his will. He never dreamt of having some great army career. It's what his father wanted. Let's take a second to talk about Grant's real name. He grew up as Hiram Ulysses Grant, but the boy hated the name Hiram. He'd been going by Ulysses, or actually the nickname Ulyss, for a while, and he figured he could just swap his two names when he got to West Point. Personally, I'd have gone with Hiram, but that's just me. When the congressman who knew his dad submitted the application to the military academy, he mistakenly wrote Ulysses S. Grant. After all, the kid went by Ulysses, and this guy figured the boy's name was the same as his mother's maiden name, and that was Simpson. Grant even signed his early letters from New York as U.H. Grant. For the record, his spelling was shaky, he didn't like his blankets, and French and algebra were hard. Grant graduated 21st out of 39 cadets at West Point in 1843. Just three years later, all these new graduates found themselves in the middle of the Mexican War. Four of them got killed during it. Lieutenant Grant ended up fighting in every major battle of the war, except for one, and he had his great moment of heroism at Monterey. He and his small unit were part of a forward advance through these narrow old city streets. Well, Grant and his men are almost out of ammunition. They're pinned down. The lieutenant himself jumps on a horse, keeps low, hangs onto the horse's mane, rides through the hail of bullets to the rear, loads up with more ammo, and rides back through the same gunfire to resupply his guys. 
There are three important things you need to know about Grant and the Mexican War, though. One, just prior to shipping out for Texas, Grant got engaged to his academy roommate's sister, a young lady named Julia Dent. Two, he served under Generals Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott, two guys who were very different but both successful as strategists, and Grant came to admire them and emulated the best ideas of both. Served him pretty well during the Civil War. And three, Grant clearly opposed this war from the outset. Almost in shades of Vietnam, only with brutal honesty, he later called the Mexican War one of the most unjust ever waged by a stronger against a weaker nation. He called it a wicked war, but he said, quote, I had not moral courage enough to resign. That's an honest man talking right there, folks. Let's talk about one more moral viewpoint before we go any further, because it was the huge question of the day. What was Grant's outlook on slavery? His wife's family, the Dents, had been slave owners, but his family was most assuredly not. Hell, his wife had been gifted four human beings by her father. Grant himself said that he was never an abolitionist, and when his father-in-law, who didn't particularly like the boy most of the time, tried to get him set up in farming, it was on a slave-powered farm. But the people who knew Grant then said he was hopeless. He refused to whip anybody. Grant didn't even want to give these enslaved people orders. When one enslaved man ended up as Grant's personal property, a 35-year-old fellow named William Jones, Grant freed him. No conditions, just you're free. When war broke out, Grant did not tie it to ending slavery. But like Lincoln, he changed his tune pretty quickly. By the time Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation in November 1862, Grant was totally on board with it and allowing the newly freed men to fight for the Union. He said they would make fine troops. In his memoir, Grant wrote, As time passes, people, even of the South, will begin to wonder how it was possible that their ancestors ever fought for or justified institutions which acknowledged the right of property in man. Eh, Grant was wrong about most Southerners and that. One thing you've got to talk about with Grant also is drinking. With a capital D, and that rhymes with B, and that stands for commode hugging. During his lifetime, and even after, Grant's friends said that he did not have a problem. His enemies, including those in the Klan that we will get to later, are the ones who really pushed the idea that he was a hopeless drunk who won these Civil War battles in spite of himself. There are even theories that people put forward that it was bouts with malaria that made him look drunk. Man, I wish I'd known that one when I was younger. Uh, no, Mom, it's just a malaria flare-up. A few decent historians now openly surmise that Grant suffered from alcoholism. His paternal grandfather had been a drunk to the point that Grant's father vowed to never touch the stuff. We know that Grant sometimes went months without a drop of booze, and we know that he could be a binge drinker. Still, it's rather impossible to diagnose somebody from historical documents alone. So, what do we know for sure? His fellow lieutenants in the Mexican War talk about Grant drinking. One said he feared he drank too much. Most just say that Grant loved horses, took his drinks, and played cards and smoked his pipe incessantly. In 1851, after he'd been married a few years, Grant joined the Sons of Temperance, which was like an early AA. And then the army shipped him off through Central America to the West Coast, and he left his wife behind. Whether it was being away from the wife or away from his support group, Grant started drinking again. 
The commanding naval officer on the boat trip said Grant never went to bed before 3 or 4 in the morning. In fact, that admiral was the enabler. Here's what he said. I had given him the liberty of the sideboard in my cabin and urged him frequently never to be backward about using it as though it were his own. And he never was. Every night after I turned in, I would hear him once or twice, sometimes more, open the door quietly and walk softly over the floor so as not to disturb me. Then I would hear the clink of glass and a gurgle, and he would walk softly back. He drank heavily while he was stationed in Oregon, and his friends put it down to loneliness. Alcoholic or not, above all, I think you can say that Grant knew that he had these personal demons, and that his unrelenting drive for success throughout life may well have been just his personal quest to avoid more failures. Because his duty out west, (laughs) duty, had kept him separated from his family for years, Grant quit the army. So he's back with Julia, and he quit drinking again. He wrote one buddy that he hadn't been blutered in a year. On the other hand, he completely failed in his attempt to run his own farm in Missouri. When the Civil War broke out, U.S. Grant was back working in his dad's store in Galena, Illinois. They needed men with experience. Grant had little self-esteem left at that point, and he wanted to get away from living off his father. The governor of Illinois put him in charge of a very unruly regiment of militia. Grant whipped him into shape through six hours of daily drill and a strict policy of no drinking. He kept doing things right, and before he knew it, he was Brigadier General of Volunteers by September 1861. Grant took kind of an accidental path of attrition to being Supreme Commander of the U.S. Army. There were lots of complaints from his peers in the Army high brass, but all the guy did was win. Military commanders in wartime are about as backbiting and cat-scratchy as a drunk small college sorority. But while the other top Union generals were either being boneheaded or, in the case of McClellan, preening and whining, Grant was racking up some wins out west where the big newspaper correspondents didn't always go. He took two very difficult forts on the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. He won a very costly victory at Shiloh, and that word, costly, shows up as the primary criticism of Grant as a general. Lots of his soldiers got killed. Well, it's warfare before drones and tanks and airplanes. It's often charging into the enemy's lines. It's flat-ass brutality. But he kept capturing territory and killing rebels. By late 1862, Grant, now the top Union dog in the West, which meant over the Appalachians, had his army at Vicksburg. It was a chance to give the Union control of the Mississippi River, and that would be huge because it's the way the South had been getting a good amount of supplies and men from west to east. The Union already controlled New Orleans and St. Louis, so this would cut that middle part of the river. But it's high up on this bluff with big-ass guns and a ton of troops. Grant tries attacking from the north. He tries to dig a canal at one point. He tries to float under the big guns. Notably, he has Sherman with him as second in command, and these two guys take no shit from anyone militarily. They're the Dick Butkus and Conrad Dobler of Army Generals. Finally, Grant crosses the river to the west, no easy task because there was no freaking bridge, and goes south of Vicksburg and crosses back. He has now surrounded the city and that Confederate army, and he proceeds to starve them out. By the time they run out of rats to eat, it's July. But the city falls. From there, he bails out the Union army that's almost surrounded at Chattanooga, Tennessee. 
Abe Lincoln knows his best commander when he's hit over the head with it. So Grant is moved back east and given command over the whole shebang. His bloodiest battle was the wilderness. This hellish two days of bullets and artillery and forest fires and bodies piled in heaps. Grant lost 18,000 men, but when it was done, he kept following Robert E. Lee toward the Confederate capital of Richmond, and that was something that none of the Union guys ahead of him had done. Beat them while they're down. It was not easy. Thousands of people died, but ultimately, Grant utilized his strength in numbers to win the Civil War. Sounds simple, but it was something his numbnuts predecessors had just failed to do. Part of what made Grant successful is that he got along with Lincoln, and he earned the president's trust. When he lost a battle or a significant number of men, Grant accepted responsibility, you know, like a grown-up. He didn't try to scapegoat anyone, including Lincoln. Grant did not start out, as he put it, as a Lincoln man, but he was by the end of the war. That's part of why he let Robert E. Lee off the hook so easily when Lee surrendered at Appomattox. The guy was a clear traitor to the United States, but Grant let him keep his sword and his dignity. You can argue about the message that ultimately sent, but it was what both Grant and Lincoln agreed to, and it showed humility, empathy, and a view of farsightedness. So keep those qualities in mind as we get to the important part about Ulysses S. Grant, the President of the United States. As much as he built a relationship with Lincoln, Grant quarreled with Andrew Johnson, the guy that took over after Lincoln was assassinated. When the war was over, Grant continued to be the head of the U.S. Army. So after Lincoln is murdered, he's dealing with Johnson, who is just a small-minded and very petty man. Several decisions of Johnson, Grant protested vehemently. In 1868, nobody in their right mind thought Andrew Johnson was going to be reelected. After these horrible political divisions, a president basically switching sides in the view of most Republican politicians, and an impeachment process where there was rather open dealing for votes, the Republicans wanted a unifying candidate. And who better than the biggest war hero in the nation? The surviving one of the duo that saved the Union and a guy whose campaign slogan was, Let us have peace. Grant's a dream candidate. In the election of 1868, Grant got 53% of the popular vote. Not exactly a landslide. It certainly helped that many ex-Confederates still couldn't vote. The electoral side of things, though, produced a much more one-sided result over Horace Seymour, perhaps the most tragically uncool name of any presidential candidate ever. When he was elected, the American people hoped for an end to this roiling and turmoil they'd been living for decades. And in the North, they figured the slavery question was now settled once and for all. The ex-Confederates in the South, of course, the radical right-wingers of their day, they weren't giving that up. And this is where the misconception about Grant's presidency comes in biggest. The White House history website itself badmouths Grant. It says, and this is a quote, Grant provided neither vigor nor reform. Looking to Congress for direction, he seemed bewildered. One visitor to the White House noted a puzzled pathos as of a man with a problem before him which he does not understand the terms. And I'm fitting to explain why that's mostly bullshit. It's wrong. The White House is wrong about U.S. Grant. Let's start with the biggest issue facing the country. Grant advocated the 15th Amendment, which gave the freedmen, these former slaves, the right to vote. 
not even all the Republicans in the North were for it. They were all for black voters in the South because that meant more votes for the party. But Grant wanted to make sure that every black man in America could vote. The first of his problems came with some of his cabinet appointments. He brought military staff and old friends to some positions, and he'd never run anything as a civilian. And you see this kind of thing with every single president who had no background in federal government. Every one of them. President is not an entry-level position, and it caused problems, including for Grant. But Grant had a good moral compass and plenty of administrative experience in the military. It's just that most of government, unlike most of our current budget, is not the military. Politically, Grant bought in to the radical Republicans, and don't let either one of those words fool you. The radical Republicans were the liberals. They wanted change. They were the abolitionists, and they were pushing for real civil rights. On the other hand, even though they got their asses whipped in the most punishing and embarrassing manner, the South was acting like anything but beaten. The ex-Confederates, they're regularly ambushing members of the occupying army. They lied about them to the press. They formed the Klan to terrorize not only the newly freed blacks, but any whites who showed any sympathy to the Union. Southerners and their governments flatly refused to accept the amendments that freed the slave and made them citizens of the United States. Many of them were convinced that slavery would return under a different name, and they thought to make that happen via these black codes. And one day, we'll visit the whole topic of Reconstruction, because it's terrifying and fascinating. For now, suffice it to say that Grant was facing the highest pile of shit the nation had ever seen before them without a full active war being in progress. Andrew Johnson had already readmitted the rebellious states to the Union for the most part. They had varying degrees of elected governments, but any time they got their own way, they did whatever they could to take things back to the times of white supremacy. Grant took several very strong actions to stop this and protect the civil rights that I mentioned. For starters, he created the Department of Justice to back up the attorney general with some independent power. Keep that in mind when you're moving forward, independent Department of Justice, but that's another thing. He also specifically sent troops to arrest Klan leaders and ensure free elections in 1872, with black men getting their first ever chance to vote for a president. One of the most important things from his first term was the so-called radicals in Congress passed and Grant signed what became called the Force Acts. Sounds ominous, right? What they did was force these mouth-breathing rednecks to respect the 14th and 15th Amendments. How unreasonable. It authorized federal authorities to enforce penalties upon any of these jackholes who interfered with the registration, voting, office-holding, or jury service of freedmen. It also created federal election supervisors, just like we send to other third-world countries. And believe me, that's what the South was at that moment in time. And it empowered the president to use military forces to make summary arrests. Those are the troops I mentioned earlier that Grant sent after the Klan. He started by having nine South Carolina counties placed under martial law, and he reined those bastards in. Overall, throughout the South, the Force Acts allowed for more than 5,000 indictments and 1,250 convictions. The carrot that went with the stick was the Amnesty Act. It cleared 150,000 former Confederates to be able to run for public office again. In hindsight, it was a very bad decision for human rights, but they were trying to end the sectional differences, as they called them. 
What it did was create an exception for a clause that was an important part of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment allowed exceptions to be created if they passed with a two-third vote of Congress, and this one did. And all of that sounds maybe a little familiar in relation to January 6th and the attempt to overthrow a legal election. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment prohibits the election or appointment to any federal or state office of any person who had held any of the certain offices and then engaged in insurrection, rebellion, or treason. I think it also implied something about wearing fake animal skins and rubbing your ass on the Speaker's office chair. I'll have to look that up. In his second term, just as the Republicans were fixing to lose control of Congress, Grant signed the Civil Rights Act of 1875. It was designed to give equal colorblind access to places like restaurants and entertainment venues. He had nothing to do with writing it, but he agreed with it, he signed it, and he had spoken plainly and clearly for this in his addresses to Congress. Grant said, and this is a quote again, While I remain executive, all the laws of Congress and the provisions of the Constitution will be enforced with rigor. Treat the Negro as a citizen and a voter, as he is and must remain. Then we shall have no complaint of sectional interference. In the end, that Civil Rights Act didn't mean jack shit, obviously. The Justice Department, and especially state and some federal judges, just flat-ass refused to enforce it. And when it came before the Supreme Court, these justices, many of them Republicans appointed by Grant, they dismantled the whole thing. But it was the first time that a civil rights law ever passed the Congress and became law. And it was certainly not Grant's fault that a huge number of other people lacked moral fiber, or even moral dial-up, for that matter. Okay, the scandals. The worst and first was probably Jay Gould and Jim Fisk, or maybe Carlton Fisk. These guys were very underrated robber barons. The plan was that they would befriend the president and find out insider information that would allow them to corner the entire American gold market, push up the price, and get even richer than they already were. Grant, meanwhile, was selling off the Treasury's gold every week to pay off the huge national debt from the Civil War and stabilize the dollar. So Gould and Fisk were doing this at the expense of the United States government. Gould and Fisk were whispering to Grant that these gold sales would hurt farmers. So Grant eventually stopped his weekly sales, and that drove up the price just like these crooks wanted. When he figured it out, Grant and his Treasury Secretary, a guy named George Boutwell, sold a bunch of the gold and drove the price down, which ruined the plans of Fisk and Gould. Almost completely succeeded, except that Gould was able to sell some things off because, of all people, the First Lady, Julia Grant, had unwittingly tipped him off. Either way, a major national depression was averted. Grant is as honest as they come, and that actually hurt him in the sense that he couldn't always see the dishonesty in others. But there were just these constant scandals, and they all stemmed not from things he did, but from things his knuckle-headed friends and family were doing. Think of it as putting Jimmy Carter in charge of an administration filled with Trump's and Nixon's appointees. Grant was not a crook, not even close, but good God did he have bad judgment in friends. You just want to grab the guy by the shoulders and shake him a little bit, don't you? In the days before everything was annoyingly called gate, the term in Grant's day was ring. You had the New York Custom House ring, the Star Route Postal ring, the Trading Post ring. 
There were bogus contracts given to a guy named Sanborn and men masquerading as Secret Service agents who broke into a government safe that was part of the Washington contractor's ring. All of this meant bribery, graft, shakedowns, kickbacks, you know, the mafia. Ha! <laughs> no wait, just kidding. It was small-time politicians. These were more of Grant's friends, and more frequently, friends of friends, who were robbing people blind. Eventually, Grant and Boutwell and others shut it all down. Grant fired multiple cabinet secretaries and bureau chiefs, but the mud stuck, even though the people he fired were his friends that he had mistakenly brought into office. Another biggie was the whiskey ring, and this vast conspiracy went on for five years. Basically, whiskey distillers were bribing treasury agents to evade paying alcohol taxes. When it came to light, Grant ordered his Justice Department, which he had just created, to go after everyone. His own personal secretary got indicted, and so were people, once again, that Grant had appointed to offices, including one of those ex-Union generals. Grant had reformer tendencies, even if he didn't always understand how to implement them. One of the things he understood was wrong was the civil service system. Up to then, every time a new president came into office, he and his minions got to reappoint every federal job holder in the country. No joke. So you're a postmaster in Eufaula, Alabama, but you may have voted for the other guy. Well, you're now out of a job. Needless to say, it's the perfect recipe for blatant bribery. Grant demanded change, and he even held off appointments until his concerns were acknowledged, at least moderately. He was the first to take action against the problem, but the whole patronage system continued. Grant kind of shot it in the leg, but it kept limping along just fine for a few more years. Grant tried to be fair. He reduced the federal workday to eight hours, though Congress later repealed that and sought to reduce federal day wages. So Grant signed an executive order saying that there would be no reduction in wages for federal day workers. This is a biggie. I'm a big fan of nature and parks and animals, and Grant is kind of a star in this area. Grant established the first national park at Yellowstone. It was not just our first national park, it was the first national park in the entire freaking world. There had been an expedition to go explore the upper Yellowstone River Basin, and afterwards there were magazine reports of these incredible natural wonders. And there really were, at this time, some serious and foresighted conservationists, good folks who could see the future. It was Jay Cook, the nation's first investment banker and owner of the Northern Pacific Railroad, of all people, who ultimately convinced the feds that this incredible land needed to be preserved. So Grant signed it into law. He also signed protection for northern fur seals in parts of the Alaska Territory, and that was the first federal protection of any species. Eventually, Grant broke up with the radical Republicans. Nobody got shacking up, mind you. It's not you, it's me. Details on that in a second. It, by the second term, a big part of the country had lost its taste for federal troops in the South. But Grant did have one last hurrah in using the U.S. Army to maintain civil rights. It happened in the run-up to the election of 1876, right as Grant's getting ready to leave office. The terrorists in the South, like the Klan that had been put down, often took to calling themselves something innocuous, like a volunteer fire department or a rifle club. And in South Carolina, yes, South Carolina yet again, it was rifle clubs, going under the collective name of Red Shirts. They were in the business of making sure blacks did not vote, since there were more blacks than whites in South Carolina. By a lot. 
like 63% of the people were newly freed slaves. So the only way the radical whiteys were going to win was stop the blacks from voting. Stop me if you've heard this. There was a massacre at Ellerton, South Carolina, where the red shirt shot down about 50 freedmen, and then another shootout between the two sides after that. Grant ordered 1,100 infantrymen in there and shut that gunfire shit down. Election day itself was quiet, except that both sides claimed victory. And when the newly installed President Hayes withdrew all the federal troops from the South as part of a bargain for him taking office, well, no surprise that the better-armed whites installed their governor, which is such a surprise since South Carolina has been such an open-minded place ever since. Back during the Civil War, Grant had issued an order that singled out and expelled Jewish traders from the area around Vicksburg while he was in charge there. And it came from his father trying to make money off his son, the general. The dad entered into a deal with these Cincinnati traders, the Mack brothers, who came down to Vicksburg and tried to use the old, well, I'm partners with your dad, to get the concession to sell captured southern cotton. Grant sent these guys packing without a deal. So it's tough to say if Grant was truly anti-Semitic or just trying to stop war profiteering. Either way, he was supremely pissed at his father. He regretted doing it. So as soon as he became president, Grant started issuing statements condemning the notion of a Christian nation. He gave the first ever support to Jews being persecuted in Russia and Romania. And he also appointed more Jewish people to public office than anyone before him. It really made a difference in lowering anti-Jewish prejudice in the United States. And Grant carried that over into his other policies. This is from a speech he gave in September 1875. He said he wanted, quote, security of free thought, free speech, and free press, pure morals, unfettered religious sentiments, and of equal rights and privileges to all men, irrespective of nationality, color, or religion. As far as education in particular, Grant said that every child should receive, quote, the opportunity of a good common school education, unmixed with sectarian, pagan, or atheist tenets. Leave the matter of religion to the family altar, the church, and the private schools. Keep the church and state forever separate, end quote. Grant even proposed and pushed an amendment to the Constitution that would establish universal public schools and prohibit any public money or publicly owned property from going to private religious schools. The House passed that idea by a vote of 180 to 7, but it fell four votes shy of getting the two-thirds majority it needed in the Senate. Now, that kind of law sounds fantastic, particularly given that the radical right is currently trying to establish a national religion and give our hard-earned tax money to religious schools. We sure as shit need more of Grant's thinking today, but... There's a catch. Part of that money that Grant was trying to keep out of private schools was aimed against Catholic schools filled with immigrants. And Grant most definitely showed an anti-immigrant streak when he was younger. So while the context might not be exactly pure, the result sure as hell is. Let's throw a little foreign policy in here, shall we? Grant's administration restored relations with Britain under his Secretary of State, Hamilton Fish. The U.S. had a bunch of claims against Britain because the British had been supplying the rebel South with ships to attack the Union Navy and run the blockade. So those limeys backed the wrong horse, and now, as George C. Scott so eloquently put it, You owe me money! The Senate Foreign Relations Committee wanted the Brits to pay $2 billion. Or, as an alternative, 
give us Canada. <laughs> yeah, I'm not making that up. Well, it all got settled, pip, pip, cheerio, and they kept Canada, and we got two of the Spice Girls and a bottle of brown sauce. The administration also settled disputes with Spain over Cuba. Grant wanted to recognize the Cuban rebels and end slavery in Cuba under the Spanish. And we actually came close to war with Spain. But once again, Secretary Fish, and I swear I cannot help but think of Barney Miller, Fish got things all smoothed out. Another interesting piece of foreign policy came up under Grant. He tried to annex Santo Domingo, which was the name for the Dominican Republic at the time, but the Senate shot him down. His thinking was certainly based in his time period, but basically it went like this. He wanted a safe haven alternative place that the newly freed former slaves could go if they wanted to. He thought that the threat of losing their workforce would force the white southern planters to both pay better and act better toward the newly freed people. He also thought that an American state in the middle of the Caribbean would make the Spanish end slavery on Cuba and eventually even grant the Cubans independence. Grant also thought that this would provide a dandy Navy base for the United States. So he worked out a deal to buy the country and grant it statehood. He even had an annexation treaty worked up, and the leader of Santo Domingo signed it. But Grant hadn't bothered to get support in the Senate beforehand, and that's who has to ratify these treaties. Charles Sumner, who was kind of the crotchety old liberal Bernie Sanders of his day, was vehemently opposed to this idea, and he even managed to get a spy in the State Department. The treaty ended with a tie vote in the Senate, but Grant was not given up. He went after Sumner with everything he had. He eventually got Congress to authorize a commission that included Frederick Douglass to go to the island, and they came back reporting that the people of Santo Domingo wanted annexation. In the end, this was the issue that drove Sumner, Senate leader of the most liberal faction, those radical Republicans, away from Grant, who formed a new coalition with more moderate Republicans. But the whole thing just kind of fell apart. It's interesting to look at now in light of the ongoing discussion about Puerto Rico. Grant was also president at the time of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the earliest advocates for women getting the vote, suffragettes, an irresistible word that's in a Beatles song. Grant certainly didn't achieve full suffrage, but he did advocate equal rights for all, including women. He signed off on laws that protected a woman's property from debts incurred by their husbands and also allowed them to sue in court in Washington, D.C., and that was the only place where he had the power to make that happen. Women already had those rights and more in states like Texas that had been formed under Spanish law instead of English law. Grant also wanted equal pay for women in the federal government, and he eventually got a somewhat watered-down version of that. Keep in mind that lots of change in this country has started with changes to the federal workforce because that's the most controllable under law. And that was even true back during the 18th presidency. The last big point to explore is Grant and the American Indians. And you can't talk about pre-World War I America without talking about Indian policy. And again, U.S. Grant gets high marks here. You take it in the context of the times, of course, but he did much better than most everyone who came before him. Not even close to that genocidal Jackson and even the polar opposite of Abe Lincoln, whose biggest legacy Achilles' heel might be his action toward indigenous Americans. Grant appointed the first American Indian commissioner of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, a guy who was a member of the Seneca tribe. By today's standard, 
Grant was in no way enlightened. I'm not saying he was. He still wanted to, quote, civilize them, but make them citizens at least. Most importantly, Grant wanted peaceful relations after all these bloody Indian wars that came under Lincoln. To study and achieve this, Grant created a commission, all European Americans in this case. And in one of the ultimate no-shit moments in American history, this commission determined that much of the conflict with American Indians had been caused by the encroachment of whites. Huh. Who'd have thunk it? The commission did, of course, wholeheartedly back the destruction of indigenous culture. By that, I mean they wanted the American Indians to learn Western ways. That was what becoming civilized meant to them. Of course, it largely succeeded over time as well. My own personal American Indian family was about 99% westernized by my count. My grandmother almost never snuck out at night and stole horses after the Eisenhower administration. Grant did oversee the demise of the great buffalo herds. The whites had been slaughtering buffalo by the millions, taking the hides and leaving the meat to rot. That's the whole Ken Burns buffalo documentary that's on right now. And if you haven't seen the pictures, avoid them, unless you're the kind of person who wants to tour John Wayne Gacy's crawl space. The native Indians protested, of course, and Congress actually passed a bill to stop whites from killing buffaloes. But Grant didn't sign it. He thought no more buffalo meant fewer things that these American Indians could be fighting over, and that it would force them to go onto the reservations. It also meant that ranchers could use more open land for their cattle, and that's very shitty news altogether if you're a buffalo. It was not all on Grant, but whites slaughtered 40 million American bison during the middle 50 years of the 19th century, including thousands killed illegally on the Indian reservations. Interestingly, the last place that they thrived was in the new Yellowstone National Park, a place which finally got enforcement to protect them in 1894. Just two weeks after his second inauguration, the Modoc Indians out in California, under the leadership of a chief named Captain Jack, who later started his own line of rum, wrote songs for Billy Joel, and became a pirate, attacked and killed 18 white settlers. The army at this point was under the command of William Tecumseh Sherman. And for a guy with an indigenous middle name, Sherman was no friend of the American Indian. His idea was, let's kill them. But Grant ordered him to send a peace commission. And they sent a general named Canby. And Captain Jack sat down in a big tent, drew a pistol, and shot Canby right in the head. He also killed a minister who was along with him. Again, Sherman just wanted to exterminate them all. But instead they settled for just executing Captain Jack, a guy who clearly did not play well with others. The biggest trouble, and the end of Grant's repeated attempts at making peace with the nation's tribes, came with the Sioux in Montana and Wyoming. Right before Grant took office, there had been Red Clouds War, which ended with the Fort Laramie Treaty that pretty much let the Oglala Sioux hunt all through the area. Plus, it gave them roughly the entire left half of South Dakota as a reservation. But in 1874, some Jed Clampett discovered gold in the Black Hills, which was smack dab in the middle of the Sioux Reservation. The whole thing sounds remarkably like the start of the Cherokee land and gold in Georgia. Grant was under huge pressure to let these Americans go dig for gold in the Black Hills, so he tried to buy the reservation back for $25,000 and give the Sioux a new reservation, but they wanted their land. 
Some of the Sioux chiefs did not go to war, but Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse sure did. Well, Grant decided not to fight against the Sioux who remained on the reservation, but he did send the army after all the Sioux and their allies who continued to roam and hunt on that land over in northern Wyoming and southern Montana, and that turned out to be the Great Sioux War. It was all Grant's final year in office, and you can just imagine him thinking, damn, I was so close to not killing these people anymore. There were battles all through that summer of 1876, including Custer at Little Bighorn. It finally started to wind down right as Grant left office. And for the guy who worked really hard for an end to the bloodshed of the indigenous, he somewhat got it, just not how he wanted it. The Great Sioux War marked the last big battle victories of American Indians over the United States Army. Throughout the two terms in the White House, Julia Grant became the first First Lady to really get national attention along the lines of, ooh, what dress was she wearing, and who made that necklace? Now, she was not especially a looker, if I'm being shallow about it. In fact, Julia Grant was cross-eyed, but she was warm-hearted, and she and Grant loved each other very much. The press doted on her and their kids. When Grant's daughter, Nellie, got married in the East Room of the White House, even though it was to some English fop named Algernon, it was the proverbial fashizzle. Julia Grant even wrote her own autobiography, the first time a first lady had ever done that. After he left office, Grant and Julia took the show overseas, and they journeyed around the world. All over Europe, Egypt, Russia, China, Japan, he was celebrated as a great hero and given lavish gifts. Tough to tell about him, but Julia Grant clearly ate that shit up. When they got back, Grant started to get some buzz about running for president again. Rutherford B. Hayes, who had replaced him, has said he was not seeking a second term. But in the end, the Republicans nominated James Garfield, yet another Civil War general. The sad part is that the Grants were largely broke. What little money they had accumulated he lost in a Wall Street crash and a Ponzi scheme. To top it all off, U.S. Grant was diagnosed with terminal throat cancer. He settled into a cottage in the Adirondacks in New York and started a race against death to finish his memoirs. His good friend, Mark Twain, advanced the family money to live on and paid to publish the book. It earned the Grant family $450,000, which was enough to see them through the rest of their lives. But Grant, he himself, did not live to see that happen. If you visit the Grant cottage today, it's like a little time capsule from when he died, including the original funeral flower arrangements that are still there, sent by admirers around the country. I leave you with these three words. Read the book. Grant's memoir is perhaps the best, most honest, and straightforward autobiography ever written by an American politician. Easily the best by any American president. Take the time. Enjoy it. One personal note. I'm off to a convention for a week, so the next episode may be a little bit later than I'd like. Please bear with me, and we'll see you next time on Prick the Balloon. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out my website at MikeVanceWriter.com. Prick the Balloon is copyrighted by Mike Vance, all rights reserved.